the third chapter. Wonderful presence of the Lord in our worship. We've worshipped and testified perhaps a little longer than we normally do, but there's nothing wrong with that. Amen. <clears throat> going to be preaching this morning. You'll probably find a similar vein to the last couple of Sunday mornings, but it's where the Lord has me for the moment. So we're just going to trust that He knows what He's doing. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7 says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. And he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we're in your presence. <clears throat> we're opening your word. And we just ask you to speak to us, Lord. We're your people. God, you know what we need today. We just want you to have your way and to be glorified in our midst. Lord God, it's not about us, but Lord, it's all about you this morning, Lord God. And so we ask you for your anointing upon the ministry of the word and upon our hearts to receive it, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Bless the Lord. The Apostle John, having been one of the original 12 apostles that Jesus chose, is said to have lived longer than any of the other 11 apostles, possibly living until very late in the first century. He quite possibly was into his 90s when he died or when he was martyred, depending on exactly what version of church history you want to read. And to live into your 90s uh, in that period of history was probably quite a big deal. I imagine the, I haven't checked, but I would suggest the life expectancy was certainly not into the 90s for most people. And when you read Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, you will see that John was on the island of Patmos. Here he was exiled by the Roman emperor Domitian, I believe is how we pronounce his name. And the reason for his exile was in John's own words for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Romans like to use remote, barely inhabited islands as uh, man-made prisons that take somebody there and put them in exile and apparently it was quite common for them to do that for people they considered to be involved in in magic or witchcraft and because John was a man that believed in God and the supernatural they they put him in that same box and put him in exile he was obviously having enough of an effect with his ministry that it bothered them and so they put him on the Isle of Patmos in an effort to reduce his influence in their present-day society and while John was on the island of Patmos, when you read the book of Revelation, you will see 
that he was given incredible visions by God about the events of the last days, things that we broadly put under the umbrella of what we call prophecy, of things that would come to pass. And, and um, if, apparently, if you go there today, there is a cave that they call the Cave of the Revelator where the tourist guides will no doubt take you for a small fee. And tradition says that that's where John was when the Lord gave him the visions and the things and the revelations that he had. But these written, the collection, if you like, the written collection of the visions John had are what we know as the book of Revelation. Some people call it the revelation of John, but it's actually the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of what Jesus will do in the last days and what his ultimate purpose is. And much of the book of Revelation, if you've ever looked at it, you'll know is very symbolic in its nature. A lot of the things that John saw in his visions, John didn't understand, I don't believe. Uh, he, there's a lot of language that he uses. He talks about different beasts, different animals that he saw, and many of them having physical traits and characteristics that you will not find at the Perth Zoo. Different animals that seem to be a combination of a couple of different kinds of things. You know, a, a leopard with wings or something with ribs growing out of its side or multiple heads or there was all these strange things that he saw and those of you that are into prophecy know that a lot of these beasts represented different kingdoms possibly military possibly government possibly even spiritual kingdoms and there's a lot of this language and the book of revelation is is known for this figurative language and for people who like to spend endless hours arguing and debating about what all of the symbolic language represents and you'll be pleased to know this morning that I'm not going to venture down that road. But the first three chapters of Revelation, before we get into a lot of the uh, prophetic visions, are a record of the Apostle John being instructed to write to seven churches. Or well, actually, to be technical, he was instructed to write to the angel of those churches. And if you study that out, it would seem to mean or represent the, the pastor or the spiritual leader of that, that church or that area that he was writing to. And in those letters, he was instructed to give each of the churches a report of the spiritual condition of that church and steps that that church needed to take to adjust their spiritual condition, to return to the place that the Lord wanted them to be or to be restored to a relationship that was pleasing in the sight of God and uh, you can look at all those names all of the names have different meanings and it's quite an interesting study these seven churches that we find in the first three chapters of Revelation were real literal churches they were churches that existed in the time of the Apostle John there's some debate and discussion about their ongoing significance some people suggest that they represent a time clock through church history that each of the churches and its characteristics that were described represents the church throughout history. I'm not saying whether that is or is not the case. Some suggest a variety of things, and the, the, the important thing is that we are to learn from what the Scripture has for us. And I would suggest that we could certainly say that the seven churches and their characteristics are examples of what any church can be, good, bad, and in between. And we need to recognize the things that are written in these churches. But without reading all of the descriptions and all of the details of the letters, there are two things that are common 
to the letter to every single church. All seven of them were given a, a wide variety of reports. Some, you would say, got a good report. One church, it seems, got an A+. Plus. They didn't seem to have too many faults. Some of the other churches were hanging by a thread and about to be disposed of. And there's a, there's a whole range of the symptoms and the problems that the Lord saw in those churches. But there are two things that are common to all seven of the churches. The first is that the statement, He that hath an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. That statement is in every single letter or in every single address to all seven of the churches in the beginning of Revelation. This tells me straight off that no matter how bad things are, no matter how corrupt or how broken the church may be, God still wants to speak to His people. God still wants by His Spirit to speak to people that will hear His voice. He still wants to draw people. You see, we read those churches, and our natural thinking is right. We get rid of Laodicea. We get rid of this one because they've done that, and we get rid of this one. But God's desire was never to cut off or to disqualify. God's desire was always to restore unto himself. And even though you read those descriptions and you think, Dear Lord, I hope my church is never like that. I hope I'm never a part of a church that is like that. God was still by his spirit wanting to speak to those churches. And so that is common to all seven churches. The second thing, and this is what I want to make my title, my focal point this morning, is that each letter, no matter the condition of the church, contained a promise. It contained a reward, an eternal reward. And that promise began with these words, he that overcometh. He that overcometh. And if you will take the time to read that, you will see that with those words were included things that were of eternal value. Things that only God could give. Things that only God could deliver. And if we read verse 12 again, it says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Now, most theologians agree that when that verse says, that the Lord will write upon that church or the people in that church his new name. It's not talking about a name that we don't know. As Jesus is not going to turn up one day and say, actually, this was my nickname, my real name with all the power was whatever. But rather that when that time comes, when a church of God by his grace and by his mercy overcomes and does the things that satisfy the Lord, we will know the fullness of the power and the glory of that name that we already have, and that is the name of Jesus. Amen. We know that that name is higher than any other name. We know today that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We know that that name, the Bible says, the day will come when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess in heaven and in earth and under the earth. So there is no name anywhere that is higher than the name of Jesus. But when that day comes, when he returns for his bride, we will know his name in a capacity and an understanding and a glory greater than we are able to comprehend in the right now. 
Amen. Blessed Lord. And if you read on there, you read there are other examples of the, the eternal life that is promised and their names not being blotted out from the Lamb's book of life and all of these wonderful promises that are all hinged upon he that overcometh. Amen. When something needs to be overcome, speaks to us of a situation or an experience or a challenge or a battle or even a war, it does not suggest something that you can bypass or something that you can take the easier road, the road of the lesser price, the road of the smoother sailing. But when something needs to be overcome, it means that between us, whether we talk about as individuals, whether we talk about as families, or whether we talk about as a body of believers, it is something that if we are going to get where God wants us to get, it must be overcome. Somehow, by His power, we are going to have to get through it or over it. There is no other option. Amen. In the book of Numbers, chapter 13, we read of how Moses brought the children of Israel for the first time to a place called Kadesh Barnea, to the edge, if you like, to the brink, to the access point of the promised land, that land that had been promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and through the 400 years of slavery in Egypt, they finally found their way to this point where Moses sent in 12 spies, and we know the story of how 10 came back with an evil report. Two came back and said, it is the best land you have ever seen. It is beyond your imagination. And because the 10 brought back an evil report, there's just something about human nature that bad news always travels faster than good. And the negative report spread through the multitude of the people of Israel and their hearts failed and their faith failed and they all gave up hope. The Bible says that Caleb stood up and he managed somehow to get the people to quieten down. And he said, let's go up at once and possess it. He said, for we are well able to overcome it. He didn't say they're lying. He didn't say it's not true. There are no giants. They're making it up. He didn't say, no, 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 there were no walled cities. You're hallucinating. He knew those things were there. But he said, if we will go up at once, we are well able to overcome it. But unfortunately, the multitude had already believed the negative tale and they gave up hope. And even to the point that they spoke of killing Caleb and Joshua. And we know that if you read the history of Israel from that point, they went back into the wilderness. Forty years they wandered until all of the people above a certain age died in the desert. And when they came back, guess where they came back to? They came back to the same place. They had to come back. That progress, that growth, that victory that God wanted them to have was delayed for 40 years. They didn't find an easier way didn't find a shortcut, didn't find a place that required less consecration or less faith. They had to come back to the same point. And Caleb and Joshua were still alive. And probably the oldest people there because everybody else in their age bracket had died. And when they, oh, this is just my imagination, so humor me. But when they came back to that point again and they considered going in, in my imagination, Caleb had his sword on someone's throat and said, go and say we can't do it. I dare you. Go and say we can't take the land. If you even breathe, I'm going to cut your throat. He'd wandered 40 years in the wilderness knowing that they'd missed that opportunity because they were well able 
to overcome. When Jesus himself at the the end of his earthly ministry brings him to preparing to go to Calvary and you know the story, he leaves the Last Supper after he's washed his disciples' feet and one of his hand-picked disciples has gone to betray him. He finds himself in a garden, the place of the olive press, the Bible calls it, symbolic and, and a type because it was that place where that first press of the oil, that pure virgin oil was pressed out of the olive representing his spirit of what was about to be released through the breaking of his flesh. And the Bible says that he began to pray in such an intense fashion that his, he began to sweat as it were great drops of blood. And he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But there was no shortcut. There was no easier path. There was no place that he could go where he and the devil could negotiate some sort of peace deal, some sort of ceasefire. He knew that he was going to have victory over death, hell, and the grave. There was only one pathway. And in that garden, he overcame the fear of his flesh. He was a sinless man, but he was still a man nonetheless. He did not want the cross, but he had to overcome. Hallelujah. When you and I overcome something, When we succeed in dealing with it, we conquer it, we are victorious over it. And we come to church on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night and we sing songs like, He that overcometh, overcometh in the name of the Lord. Sister Cole used to sing that song. We sing a little more recent song that says, This is how we overcome. Your light broke through my night, restored exceeding joy. Your grace fell like the rain and made this desert live. You have turned my morning into dancing. And they're great songs. I love them. But I want you to stop and think about the lyrics. Your light broke through my what? My night. There had to be a night. Your grace fell like the rain and made what live? A desert. A place of dryness. A place where things don't blossom, things don't bloom, where it's hard, where it's tough. You've turned my morning into dancing. There had to be mourning in that mix before you can sing that song. See, we just think, oh, we overcome, we overcome, we forget. And then we move on without even thinking about it, the next song on the list and saying, I'm trading my sorrows. <laughs> we don't even think about it sometimes. I'd be like, Lord, can I buy, I'm bypassing my sorrows. It doesn't work. You've got to trade them. Hallelujah. To him that overcometh, the Bible says. It doesn't say to him that finds the path of least resistance. To him who finds the shortcut. All these modern science fiction movies, who finds a portal from one world into another and bypass all the pain. It doesn't say that. It says to him that overcometh. Will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, I, I, this is maybe a confession depending on how you look at it. I like sport. I don't look like a sportsman anymore, unless it's checkers. But I like sport. I like to watch sport. I don't watch much because I know that if I begin to do too much of that, I'll just, hours and hours will go by and, and I'll waste far too many days of my life but I do enjoy sport and so 
as, a, as something of a compromise when it's football season. I don't watch many of the games, but I'll go online and I'll watch the highlights. Go on the website and, and watch a clip of highlights of a game of football. You know, that clip usually might be three to five minutes long. Three to five minutes, that's all I get. Might watch it a few times in a row. Some of you guys understand where I'm coming from. But it's only three or five minutes long. The game went for about two hours. But I saw the highlights in three to five minutes. But while I may know who won the game, I may have seen some little portions of the game, it's not an accurate reflection of the game. It's just the good bits. You don't see the parts where they made a terrible mistake. You don't see the parts where somebody hurt themselves or, or there was, you know, somebody was tackled and hurt or they, they did something wrong, they made a terrible error. You don't see all of that. You just see the good bits. And we've got to be careful as apostolics that we don't make the mistake of viewing the highlights of Scripture. Because there's a lot of stuff in this book that doesn't make for highlights. Some of the, the great characters we know about, we, we think about people like Noah. And we think, wow, God spoke to him. And God got him to build this awesome boat. This incredible boat, this ocean, the first ocean liner. And he was able to escape judgment. We, we, we read that story and we teach it to our kids. And we think, man, that's awesome. Or we read about Abraham. God spoke to him. They were close, like they were friends. He was known as the father of the faithful. God promised him a country. He said, you go where I lead you, you can have your own country. God's never promised me a country yet. But God promised Abraham a whole country. He said, there's going to be this incredible people that are going to be your descendants. God gave him a son miraculously when he was 100 years old. We say, wow. Moses, what a guy. Moses had this magic stick turned into a snake. Imagine having that for show and tell at primary school. Up there at the front of the class. Now, what have you got? Wham! Talk about how to clear a classroom. He held up that, that rod and the sea parted down the middle. And a whole nation went through on dry ground. He spoke to a rock in the desert. And water flowed out of that thing like a, a water fountain, like a river, and... and quenched the thirst of a multitude. He prayed to God and God delivered KFC to everybody. If I could do that, every person in town would come to this church. Every person under the age of 20, maybe. But these are all the things that we think about. We think about David. He was anointed as a teenager to be the king of God's people, as just a teenager. He killed the baddest giant that anybody had ever seen. He brought the ark of God back to Jerusalem with an absolutely rock and praise and worship team. Nearly as good as our sister stinker. Nearly, not quite, but nearly. And these are the things that we think about. These are the stories that we preach about. These are the things that we use to build faith and to encourage us to trust the Lord. And we should. That's why we've got them. But these things are the highlights these are the promotional videos of these people's lives. That's not the whole story. And sometimes we read them and we think, I should go from being anointed to be the king one day, killing a giant the next day, bringing the ark back on day three. 
But when you take the time, that's not the reality. Noah spent decades, decades, building a boat for a flood that nobody believed in. He was ridiculed, treated like a fool by his friends, his extended family, brothers, maybe his parents, his community. You see, his message was one of judgment. Judgment's never popular. Preaching judgment won't get you on Facebook. Here's a tip. If you want to start an online ministry to raise money, don't preach judgment. Don't do that. Preach prosperity. Preach that God wants to bless you and make you wealthy and healthy and rich if you send me $5. That's how you make money. You don't preach judgment. But that was Noah's message. What have you got for us today, Noah? It's going to flood. You're going to die. Oh, same as yesterday. He had one message. Every Sunday morning, one message. You're all going to die. God's going to judge the world. You're all going to die. What a great church. Stay home, get the podcast. It's the same as last week anyway. I mean, there's only so many ways you can say you're going to die. It is going to flood. You're all dead. That's the reality of Noah's life. Abraham watched his body and his wife's body slowly become older. No child was born. Some nights, I have no doubt, were filled with despair. You married ladies, you married couples. Sarah probably went through periods where she blamed herself for the barrenness. He went through periods where he was frustrated. They probably got a little frustrated with each other. Hate to burst your bubble, but Abraham and Sarah were like any other married couple. They're going for years, hanging on to a promise that just doesn't seem to be coming. It wasn't always fun and candlelight dinners at their house. Things got tough. Their relationship was strained. Their, their friends and family, even their servants, were having kids. Do you know how many first birthday parties they got sick of going to? How many baby dedications they had to smile at everybody while they dedicated their child and Abraham and Sarah still had nothing? These are the details. And then, in their own wisdom, they had Ishmael made try to fix the promise of God with an Egyptian servant and that just caused them a problem they had to deal with for the rest of their lives. Do you know, Abraham, roughly, from the time that God called Abraham till the time he died, was about 100 years. Now, if you think of all the stories about Abraham, you can off the top of your head. You'd be lucky if you can fill a year. There's 99 years you don't know about. There's all those years of him thinking, Lord, Lord, are you there? Where's my child? I'm getting old. Lord, where's this land? Where's this promise? Feeling foolish, questioning himself, double-guessing himself. Did I misunderstand what God meant? Was, was he talking in a figurative sense? Am I supposed to give my, my wealth to my servant? Am I supposed to? Trying to find an answer. Trying to find something that would help him to sleep at night. Moses. Let's talk about Moses. Moses' first effort, very first effort to ever do something for the people of God earned him a 40-year timeout. He played one game and got benched for the next 40 years. That's, that looks great in your resume. 40 years until he came back. And finally he came back. 
He led the people of Israel out. They complained almost constantly. They were the worst church in the world. They were always complaining. His own siblings, his brother and sister, rose up against him. A group of young leaders, the best and brightest they had, possibly that he'd even trained, decided that they could do a better job than he did, challenged his leadership, and as a result of that, some 15,000 people died. This is Moses, the boy with the magic stick. He had to face these challenges constantly. Years. And again, you think of the miraculous things that happened in Moses' life and try to pack them into how long you think they actually took place and measure that against that 40 years in the wilderness. David, greatest king of Israel, little boy killed a giant with a rock, spent years as a fugitive, long nights hiding in caves, wondering why. Maybe the grease of the anointing oil still in his hair. I don't know if they used shampoo, I couldn't tell you. Wondering, did I miss something? Is my faith broken? Am I doubting God? I'm living in a cave like an animal. The king who I've done everything, who I've dedicated my life to serve wants to kill me. How do you think he felt? I mean, we're talking about night after night after night we read the we read the great stories that Saul comes in falls asleep in the cave you can almost hear the background music dun, 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 dun. David comes up cuts the bit off his cloak and says Saul look but that happened once twice over a period of years they were the parts that we like to preach about but what about all the other nights where he thought God what's going on why am I here what am I doing or even you know what have you done this to me for and finally, David makes it to the throne. There's a positive end of this message, just in case you're feeling depressed. Finally, David makes it to the throne, and he falls into horrible sin that brought such pain to his family. And then, in his later years, he had to face the betrayal and the threat to his life from his own son, who could have been his strength. Absalom had the potential to be one of David's right-hand men. He had ability. But his heart was wicked. You see, when you watch the replay of a whole game, it's very different from the highlights. It's very different from the highlights. And in some ways, I think you understand what I'm about to say, but in some ways these Bible characters are famous for the wrong things. We, we look at the, 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 the high notes. But you see, these, the great stories, the exciting tales that we preach about that make great sermon material are only possible because in between those men and women were overcomers. You see, we think David overcame Goliath. He won a victory that day, but that really on the scale of the things that David went through, that was one of the easier things. It was one day of his life. Maybe a couple if you look into it. But they were overcomers. And each one, each one of these characters, and there's a whole lot more we could go over, but each one of them only has a story because they overcame between the highlights. Because in those down times, in those times when they had questions without answers and the promises of God seemed a million miles away, they hung on. And that's the only reason we preach about them today. It's because of what happened in the long spaces in between. Bless the Lord. Revelation chapter 12 
You don't have to turn there, but it's talking prophetically about the kingdom of the Lord coming and of how the devil is our enemy. And it says in Revelation 12 and 10, If you are there, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now he's come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. You know, that's what you deal with. There's somebody that is out to destroy you day and night. But the next verse says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives unto the death. And when you read that verse, you need to stop and think about what it means. The blood of the Lamb speaks to us of redemption. It speaks to us of the fact that without that shedding of blood, salvation was not possible. So when he shed his blood, the first thing it did was he gave, it gave us opportunity. The second thing is when we took advantage of that opportunity, we obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ and repented of our sins and were baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, that blood was the price for our salvation to be possible. It was the price that washed away our sins. But even now, we, we look back on that first point where we believed by faith, but we still need His blood right now. I still have to go back to Him and say, God, I've fallen short of the mark. God, my attitude's not right. My spirit's bent out of shape. I'm offended. I'm hurt. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. Wash me again, God. When you're overcome by the blood of the Lamb, you don't just point back to your baptismal certificate. That's where it began. But it continues every day. God, cleanse me again. Wash me again. When David found himself becoming, trust me, hatred welled up in his heart for Saul. I, he was human just like you. I'd want to kill Saul. Forgive me, Lord. But David had to keep going back and saying, he's anointed of God. I'm not going to be the one that ends this. If God anointed him, God can take him down. Moses went to God multiple times and said, don't blot them out, God, but blot me out instead. There were other days he said, God, why did you give me these people? They're driving me nuts. But either way, at the end of the day, Moses had to go back and say, they're your people. Help me to lead your people. Cleanse us again, Lord God. Accept our sacrifice again. The blood of the Lamb is a part of your salvation from its first being shed 2,000 years ago, right up till we go to be with Him in glory. Hallelujah. Because you're going to have days where you're going to struggle with your attitude. You're going to have times when somebody's going to cut you deeply. And you're going to go to the Lord and ask Him to help you to keep a right spirit. And you're going to think that's done and dusted. And then somebody will say something or something will pop up and those feelings rush back into your heart. And you go back again and say, God, wash me again. You're overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And the word of their testimony. I loved our testimonies this morning, but this is more than just talking about what God has done. This is talking about His word and the power of His promises and being able to declare them by faith when that's all you've got. I'm glad that Abraham wavered. I'm glad that David stumbled. Not because, but I'm glad because they were still able to get up and say, he's still faithful. He'll still forgive me. He'll still let me get back on track. Noah got drunk. You know, God delivered Noah from the worldwide destruction. He comes down out of the ark, plants a vineyard, makes wine and gets smashed. 
God still forgave him. Bless the Lord. We need the word of God. We need to declare the things that God has done. We need to declare the things that he is going to do and declare the things that he is doing right now. When you're in that point where it's hard, you need to say, he saved me. He's keeping me. He knows right where I'm at. And when I'm struggling, his blood is still going to cover my sin. When I'm fighting with unforgiveness, when I'm fighting with bitterness, when I'm fighting with depression or whatever it might be, his blood is still able. But it's up to us to go to him. If you want to be an overcomer, you've got to keep going back to Calvary. You've got to keep going back to the Word and saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. That's why it talks about being renewed in the spirit of your mind. You've got to keep coming back and trying to push out what the devil's planting and replace it with the Word of God. You cannot do that in human strength. You cannot overcome by your own ability. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When, we, when the word of our testimony starts to be, well, I don't like that person anymore. That church is no good anymore. That preacher, that youth leader, that ladies, that man's, that brother that sits across the pew from me, they did this. And Your testimony is not uplifting. It's going to destroy and it's going to destroy you as well as those that choose to allow you to speak it into their lives. In Romans chapter 12, You'll turn there. And my wife and I, uh, this year we're reading a chronological Bible as part of our daily devotion. So we just mix it up a bit some years. And the, the, uh, the one we're reading at the moment, the people that produced this particular chronological daily reader, because some of the dates for some things in the Old Testament are unclear, for whatever reason, I, I did read it, but I can't remember why at the moment, they, they've positioned the book of Job in a... a in, a position I'm not really used to. My wife was quite disturbed that they'd moved Job. She wanted to take them out and stone them. But uh, the thing about the book of Job is that Job is not time relevant to anything else in the scripture. It's an unusual book because you don't read any connection to Abraham or Moses or the Israelites. So, So where it fits in the timeline, I won't say it's irrelevant because everything's relevant, but it's not crucial. It's, I mean, if you took the Bible and you put Abraham after Moses, you're going to have all kinds of problems. But Job, Job is not date or necessarily location relevant. And so the story of Job is there solely, if I can be bold enough to say that, that we might learn from his experience of his own life, not where he fits in the timeline of Israel. Because I can't fit him in the timeline of Israel. You may be able to, but it's kind of this book on the side. And Job goes through things that are terrible that I would wish upon nobody. And he goes through them not for what he did wrong, but for what he did right. And then he gets these three guys, three or four guys that are the greatest friends you've ever had that come and sit down with him and try to convince him that what's happened to him is because of his own sin. And Job gets upset, strangely enough. He's just lost all his kids. All his flocks, he's covered in boils from head to toe. He's not firing on all cylinders. Maybe a little bit cranky. But through it all, and look, Job's attitude is not right through it all, and the Lord corrects him for his attitude. But in the midst of all of that, Job is hanging on to something. And this is what makes him an overcomer. It's not his environment, 
but it's what he's hanging on to. He said that even if the worms eat this body, even if they come and they consume this carcass of mine, he said, I know that in my flesh I'm going to see him. He said, because my Redeemer lives. He said, and even if I die, I'm going to keep my integrity before him. That's an overcomer. You know, that, that's, that's not a David killing Goliath kind of story. That's not a parting of the Red Sea kind of story. But that's somebody that all he had left to hang on to by the edge of his fingernails was the fact that he knew God was faithful and that he knew that God was true. Romans chapter 12. The, the, the chapter starts with presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Brother Chichi preached from that the other night. But it goes on through the chapter about, talks a lot about relationships with different people and situations. And toward the end of the chapter in verse 20, it says, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. The principle here is that when you repay evil with good, that it will bring conviction upon the person that's done the evil. The problem is that we like the fact, when we read that, we think, Lord, burn them. And so our doing good and the motive becomes a little bit blurry because we think, I'm going to do good to this person and God's going to barbecue them. That's not the right motive. That's the principle, but the motive's wrong. The next verse says, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. This is a lot more powerful principle than just if your enemy's hungry, feed him. Because this is talking about when you go through things that are evil, when you go through things that are hard, you must not be overcome by it. It doesn't say you can avoid it. It doesn't say it won't happen. It doesn't say it won't hurt. But you must not be overcome. But rather you've got to overcome evil with good. It's a bigger principle than just giving your hungry enemy a meal or your thirsty enemy a drink. It comes back to the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. When you're going through that which is difficult, you've got to keep coming back to the cross. You've got to keep coming back saying, God, I do not want to lose out. I do not want whatever I'm going through to overcome me. I want to overcome it with good. But the scripture says there is none good but God. And so I've got to keep going back to him and getting more good for myself that I can overcome the evil that's coming against me. Hallelujah. And that's easy to preach. But man, it's hard to do. (laughs) It's easy to preach. But it's not so easy to do. But I've got to keep going back to the one the Bible says every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variables, neither shadow of turning. Every good thing comes from Him. And if I'm going to overcome evil with good, it's not going to come out of this carcass. It's not going to come out of my flesh. My flesh is going to rise up and want to strike back. It's going to want to say things that will slice and cut and harm. But I've got to keep going back to Him and saying, God, replace my evil with your good. The blood of the Lamb and the word of my testimony. Hallelujah. Let's stand together this morning. Sister Stanker, if I could maybe have you on the piano, please. Hallelujah. Second book of Peter. In the second chapter, Peter writes about all kinds of corruption, false prophets, 
clouds without water, all manner of evil things and men that are doing everything wrong and it's particularly focusing upon within the church. It's not talking about out in the world. You don't have to worry about false prophets out in the world. But it's talking about things that we may face and we may come against. And, and this is what it says. It says, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. For if after they had escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus, after God has delivered us, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. You see, when you become overcome by something, you become its slave. That's what it says. It says, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. So when I've been hurt, or you've been hurt, somebody's bruised you, you've been broadsided from some direction that you least expected it, or you're discouraged, whatever it may be, if you allow that to overcome you, it will be your master. That hurt will govern your life. That unforgiveness will dictate your thoughts and your actions throughout every day. That downcastness will cause you to give up all hope. But if you can go back to Him and say, God, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of my testimony, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. See, when the Lord wrote to Philadelphia, He didn't say, you're amazing. He just said, you've got a little strength. You haven't denied my name. That's enough. you got the name of the Lord and a little bit of strength. Because John said, 1 John 4 and 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Why? Because greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And your situation is not my situation and my situation is not yours. And I know enough about some people's stories to know that that you've, some people have been through some incredible things. Hurts that many of us could never bear. Situations and yet they keep coming back. Some of those things, if we're honest, they take years to heal. But every time it raises its head, you think, Lord, I thought I'd dealt with that. Every time you think about a circumstance and it causes feelings that you know don't please the Lord, or you yield to a temptation, to a desire that you know is wrong in the sight of the Lord, the blood of the Lamb, and the word of His testimony. You've got to come back and say, God, I thought it was dealt with, but it's risen its ugly head again, and I'm bringing it back to the cross. And I'm going to put this flesh on the altar. And I say, God, help me to overcome evil with good. Put more of your good in me, Lord. More of you, Lord God, that I might be an overcomer. Hallelujah. Don't read just the highlights. Recognize that those men and women were just like you and I. And they had sometimes just the promises. And sometimes that's all you've got. But hang on. Because he wants to make you a pillar the temple of his God. Let's raise our hands for a moment and worship the Lord. Hallelujah. You're struggling this morning as this sister leads us a song of worship. 
you feel like there's something you're battling with, I want you to bring it to this altar. I want you to come and find a place and say, God, cover me again with the blood of the Lamb. Remind me of your promises in my life. Remind me of what your word says. You won't leave me. You won't forsake me. You're my very present help in time of trouble. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run therein and is safe. Hallelujah. If I will be an overcomer by the word of my testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah, Jesus.